0: to Conversations. I'm so glad that you're joining us here today. As always, I'm uh, Tim Stein, Wendy Conquest in Colorado, Dan Drake down in Los Angeles, and Jeannie Vitoni who joins me in Santa Rosa. Uh, We are so glad that you guys are here and joining us today. Um, Hey, I was, I don't know where I heard this, but I was having a conversation with another therapist and they were talking about narcissism. And they were talking about narcissism and that balance between having a healthy amount of narcissism (laughs) and having too much narcissism. And what I loved them saying is they, they said, you know, as therapists, we have to have some narcissism. After all, we think that people coming into our office, sitting and talking with us for an hour is gonna change their life. If that's not narcissism, I don't know what is, but it's there's a, there's a healthy level of that narcissism so that we can function and help other people. I, I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts are on narcissism and finding that balance of, being self confident without becoming, you know, abusive or problematic.
1: So, Tim, are you asking this uh, from a, as therapists or or just generally people? Because I get the question a lot: is um, you know how do, how can you detect narcissism? Um, what do I do if I'm in a relationship with a narcissist? So, kind of just to clarify, are what what's? I, I think are you, go, are, you know, are you trying you to have us validate
0: out. your narcissism? <laughs> is that what's happening? <laughs> Yeah, if you guys wouldn't mind telling me that my level of narcissism is perfectly normal, I would really appreciate that. (laughs)
2: You You know, I was going to take issue with healthy amount of narcissism. Like, I I don't know if those two go together. I think there's a difference of self-confidence
3: versus narcissism. How do you define the difference?
2: Well, I was just thinking about that. It's like, I think to feel esteem oneself and feel strong in your skills but then it's maybe believing that, I think the narcissism piece would be that I'm all knowing. I don't, I don't think that I'm all knowing. I don't think that my way is the best way. I, I think lots of people have strengths and opinions. So in a therapeutic context, I wouldn't say that it's narcissistic of me to think that I might have skills and a way of doing things that's helpful to others. I think that's more based on experience and and knowledge and education rather than a healthy amount of narcissism
1: so Jeannie, are you saying sort of the difference between self-esteem having good self-esteem and then narcissism goes into a different realm that kind of piece, I, I heard that you say the word confidence and
2: that's what yeah confidence because I, I think this is my view right and i am not a narcissism expert and i don't even know how we're getting on this today tim so great job and <laughs> put <putting> the conversation <laughs> topic in there I think narcissism actually comes from feeling low self-confidence and, and, and weak self-esteems. So it's the overcompensation for that wounded self. Whereas self-confidence comes from feeling strong about one's abilities or way in the world. So I think they have different origins. Hmm. So that's what I'm like healthy dose of narcissism or, or, and, or, or just you're being funny and silly. So I, I guess my,
0: On a more serious note, I guess when I think about it, I always think about it being on a continuum, you know, of do I feel like I don't really have value, that um, I don't really have um, an opinion that's valid to share, that I don't feel like I'm attractive, and so I slide further down on that scale to low narcissism, which might be low self-esteem, or do I feel like I know everything, I'm not really considering other people, I think I am the cat's meow, you know, you should just listen to me because I'm brilliant. Uh, and I know I say that in joking, but there's a difference between that and in reality. Um, and that's more of that high level of narcissism. And there's a sweet spot in the middle where I can function effectively. And I don't know that, that anybody else agrees with me, but that's, that's how I see it. And, you know, of course I always think I'm right because I have that healthy amount of narcissism.
2: There we go, healthy amount. <laughs>
0: uh, that's uh, to be determined, huh, Tim? What healthy so we'll, let, we'll let people decide what that means. Well, you know, we have a uh, Deborah Kaplan who's gonna be joining us today, who wrote for Love and Money and Battle of the Titans and talks a lot about power, sex, money, perhaps narcissism, maybe she's got an answer for We'd us. I'd love today. to hear it. All right. Um, Deborah, hello. Can I come
4: on. <laughs> yes. I had a laugh because I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, is it narcissistic of me to say, hey, I want to weigh in on this conversation? <laughs> And, I, and I'm editing, I'm chirping, you know, from, from the peanut gallery out here. But, you know, I think you all hit on it absolutely correctly. It's about self-esteem and the awareness and the ego, the wound to the developing ego. Mm-hmm. Which I'm no expert on. I'm as human as all of us here today and listeners. But it is about wounds to the ego. And it can present as an overcompensation and an undercompensation, an over self-worth, valuing someone or oneself more, and then undervaluing oneself. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, I'm just trying, those are, that makes total sense. How does this show up? I'm curious from your experience, Deb, how does this show up in, you know, in relationships then, this dynamic? I think it
4: shows up from the better than, less than dynamic. So Mm -hmm. um, in an ideal world, we all come to a relationship and we feel equal, and we feel um, honored to be with the other person and valued and worthy. In a less than presentation, in a very extreme form of that, I apologize for the air that I breathe, the air that I take from the room because it could be yours. I apologize for my maybe my whole existence and that I do not value myself and dismiss myself with the other person if they are equally struggling to value themselves, you've got two very undeserving individuals. But more often than not, the undeserving and the low self-esteem seems to be drawn to the strength and the power of the very confident and hopefully not overly or falsely empowered. And the person who usurps the energy tells you what you need to hear because if they weren't there to tell you, you wouldn't know what to do. And so it's the overcompensation of an undervaluing of self.
2: You know, I'm thinking about this over and under, and Deb, being that you do so much work in psychology and with money, I'm thinking, oh, here we go, because this is the overachiever financially, money-wise, or the underachiever money-wise, and how that's connected to self-esteem as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, think about what better value can I put on my existence? What I accomplish, how much money I have, what I want to show the world. I mean, what better external source of um, esteem can mm-hmm. in our society? We can't, I can't speak for any other society. There may be different values and different cultural norms, but for us in this society, And we sanction work, right? Hard work, don't take vacations, work 24 seven. You know, you have your phone, skin to skin contact on the phone at all times. I mean, all of this is uh, just an extension of how do I value and be seen as valuable?
2: Okay, so here's another question and I'm putting this to the whole group here. I've noticed for me during COVID, the blurring of recreational and work because I work from home so much more often. And I'm not saying that this is connected to money, but this blurring of boundaries. And I could see that lots of people blurring with work and then that does impact money and such. But are you guys seeing that kind of blur too? Or are you guys better at keeping boundaries? Boundaries
3: about workload. Are experience. you
2: all working too much, and therefore you're an example of what you
4: don't want to talk about?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, that's too personal, Deb. <laughs> what
4: are you going to say, go,
0: I, I was, I, go ahead, Tim. Go ahead. I I, I, I was going to say, Deb. I don't know if you remember this. I I I'm actually I'm still so glad you're here because we went through Mod One and, and was, he's that training together, and then I took a break to to finish up some other work, and I came back. When I came back, you were teaching Mod Three
4: break
0: did you take? That, I like a year. I went and I was doing the post-induction therapy work with Pia Melody. And so I finished up that whole thing. And then I came back into the CSAT training. Yeah. And you did it in Tucson. I did. I did it in Tucson. We, we went out and had gelato and all kinds of good stuff, but what I remember is we were going over the trauma assessments, and we were all looking because we'd all taken them, and we were looking at our answers. And you're explaining and going through all these categories, and we get down to the bottom one, which is traumatic hyperact- hyperactivity. About tra- tra-
4: orbital hyperactivity. Mm-hmm.
0: That one. Um, and at the time in my practice, I was starting to do trauma workshops. I was starting to do more groups, and I was like advertising and putting a bunch of emails out. I think I just started doing my thought for the week stuff that I was doing at the time. So there's all this stuff that's going out. And we get down to that trauma, traumatic hyper orbital activity hyperactivity Yeah, that one. <laughs> Say that five times fast. No. <laughs> and we get there and I, and, and I raise my hand and you're talking and I'm like, okay, Deb, why is this one showing up high for me? I don't get it. I'm not hyperactive. I don't have ADHD. Jeannie's laughing right now. And, and, and you looked at me. And, you know, thank God we had this relationship and I, and, and it was so very comfortable. Julia you to me and you said, Tim, I get your emails. I see Did all I the stuff it? that you're doing. How many irons do you have in the fire at any one time that you're, that you're working on? Of course you showed up on this one because you're constantly busy. That's, that's, that's what you're doing right now.
4: That is, it, I don't, you know, I actually don't remember saying that, but I vaguely remember the, what all the things you're doing.
0: Uh huh. And so, yeah. you know, when I think about that, I go back to what Jeannie was talking about, sort of like that blurring of boundaries. Yeah. I don't know that I'm noticing it right now myself, but um, <laughs> I guess I, I've worked hard to have boundaries because apparently I, I'm not as contained as I like to think I am. <laughs>
1: So, for our audience, I just want to clarify, you know, we're using a lot of jargon that's familiar to the five of us, but um, the word CSAT stands for certified, uh, certified Sex Addiction Therapist, and so we all have that certification. And so, um, as uh, CSATs, as the, the abbreviation goes, we have access to different types of assessments to assess for trauma, which we all believe is the root of sex addiction, porn addiction. And um, we, we, so uh, we have uh, assessments that say whether um, someone you know uh, is, is identifies as a sex addict or not. We also have an assessment specifically for trauma, and there's these different uh, ways that trauma manifests. The one that Tim was referring to is a, a particular type of trauma manifestation. So just so that our
2: listeners... Yeah. Thank don't, you, Wendy. Don't get lost. <laughs>
4: so helpful. Oh, no, it's, very, it's very important.
2: Yep. Okay, I want I have my sex and money questions. Yeah. No, sorry, not no. sex and money, money and relationship question. Okay. Because as, as a preparation for someone coming in our show, we're always like thinking about what's going on for uh, this topic of money in our population and in the public. And I really came back to, you know, most, you hear this as a phrase, Lots of folks argue, lots of couples argue about sex, money, and kids. Why money? What is about money that is so sort of volatile? And and certainly this is to Deb, but this is to all of us. Like, what is it about money that people get so worked up about? What are your thoughts?
1: Can I start? I'm going to lead off. Yeah. Um, So... um, Uh, So, so my clients will ask me this too. Why are we arguing about money? Why is it such a big deal? And so one of the uh, thoughts that I've had is that um, if we have a hunter gatherer brain and it's all about survival um, in our society now, money, money equals food, money equals shelter. It's the root chakra. It's, it's, it's basically, if you don't have money, you're not, you're not going to make it.
4: It's safety. safety. Oh, I think
0: I, I think it it goes a little. I, I think it's a little bit more broad. I always think about it as what does money represent? Like I, I I think about the guys I work with that are paying for sex, and when we get down to it, it's like if I have money, then I have value. If I have money, then I'm successful. If I have money, then I'm good enough. And so I think a lot of the argument about money. Is, is about survival, you know, am I surviving? Do I have, it, it's the currency to get food and all that stuff. But I think it also comes into that that piece of what does it about, mean about me if I have it or if I don't have it? What does it mean about me if, if cause we also see the other side of that of people having, you know, uh, compulsively not under earning you know, compulsively not gathering money because if they have it somehow they're gonna feel like they're not okay cause they're being selfish or they're, they're, there's something but it's like, what does it represent on that deeper level about that person. But then not only that person, but how does that intersect with the other,
3: your partner's experience with, with what right. money represents? And then how does this represent us as a couple? How much do couples communicate about this stuff? What money right. means to us as a couple, and you know, kind of all our backgrounds with with money. I, I mean I think it's that's just so fraught with so much conflict, possibly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: I th- I think it's a very um it can become very reductive, you could reduce it down to its bare minimum of what it represents. But I think it really is important, as I say, from a phenomenological perspective, what's the meaning of it? What's the meaning, the essence for somebody? For example, you you could have a couple um, where I do these intensives, let's say um, this particular heterosexual couple came in and he's, the uh professional in the relationship he's actually a, a medical doctor and he does not know how to value inventory so he's just buying and buying and buying and the wife whose money they are using from an inheritance is the one who called me because she said that i, I keep throwing more money after more there's just so much of it and when in the end of the day when it came down to it he I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the the punchline, but I think it's going to help us understand that for him, he could not fail. In his family, he had to be successful yeah. and see himself as successful, whatever it took. So there really was no business plan. It was don't fail, and I must succeed. For her, she came at it from this makes no sense. We're using this inheritance. I'm uncomfortable spending. Because I come from a family that spends less, we're much more prudent with how we spend. And so they were really at odds with each other until we really got down to what is the meaning of this? What is driving? What are the drivers underneath all of the behavior? What are the psychological, the emotional drivers of money and work? And that's mm-hmm. where, to your question, Jeannie, a lot of couples argue about money. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and, and I well, have... One thing, I want to make sure that the listeners and viewers, if they're watching, this is not about lack of resources or inability to meet necessary um, standards of living. So that aside, I want to be very careful that I make that delineation because people argue about money when they don't have it and they cannot sustain their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not what we're referencing. Mm
2: -hmm. That's not what we're referencing. I'm also thinking that how often do kids grow up being taught about money whether there's not enough and so that scarcity that fear of not having enough or just it's not part of the conversation because there's such a separation between parent responsibilities and roles and child roles for some families so there's no
3: role modeling well, that we're taught about money, whether we talk about it or not, right? I mean, that right. if we're taught it can be well, verbal yeah. or we're, what we see, but we all learn. I mean, I think my family didn't talk much about money, but I learned a whole lot about how they handle things and what I thought was the way you're supposed to handle things. And then I get in a relationship, and you know, yeah, handle things differently. And how do we navigate that stuff? Yeah. And
2: you're you're totally hitting on something, Dan, because there's the the purposeful teaching that can occur in some families. And then there's just what a kid picks up, what is and, modeled, and the modeled, and what the kids, what the kid creates his own narrative about <laughs> what he's seeing or experiencing. Certainly, that's a learning. I was going more for an active teaching mm. kind of focus, but you're right. Our society teaches us, the way our friends interact teach us, and the narratives we create as we're growing up would teach us. So I think that's another part that's in there about why people argue. Uh, educate with instruction with intentionality around yes it.
0: right yeah. figuring it out I, I love what you said Dan like I, I know an, in my family I'm sure that there was yeah. a financial plan that I wasn't privy to but the way that I saw it was my parents had what they called the envelope method so they had envelopes <laughs> in it put cash in it for groceries cash in it for gas cash in it for other things and so when I first moved out here to California I had an envelope method to manage my small budget Which worked for a while but eventually it wasn't working anymore and as actually a part of my recovery was sort of looking at my finances looking at what was going on and actually figuring out a financial system for myself and for uh, my family Mm -hmm. that would work more effectively for us but you know Mm -hmm. i had picked up from my parents some financial information but at some point it broke down because I, i don't think i had the full full picture
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot and I wrote about it in the book I I learned a lot sitting in the back seat observing to the front seat as to what went on with my parents I mean I learned a lot about money and how it's negotiated and has the power in that way and who doesn't and um, but I have to say I was also very fortunate that my parents did in some ways teach us about money uh, although it was not a instructional sit down, let me tell you how it goes, but it was more of a very succinct modeling of how to pay bills and how to be responsible with money and, and how not to overspend. But um so, you know, very far and few in between. You know so Deb,
1: how, how for our listeners and our viewers, how would somebody know if they have, you know, what we would call a financial disorder. So can you explain what a financial disorder is and then how does somebody go around Uh, seeing if they have
4: one? Mm -hmm. It's a great question because it's quite a misnomer, like what's a disorder? And without pathologizing, any behavior can become problematic if it begins to result in negative consequences. And despite those negative consequences, someone persists in the behavior. So for example, overspending, Mm -hmm. people come in and they say, I have a debt I have a problem with debt. I'm maxed out with debt. And when you look underneath the billfold, you find out they don't have a debt problem, they have a spending problem. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: So the problem really becomes an inability to put boundaries for spending. Whatever drives that remains to be seen, but the disorder is more about the dysfunction or the compulsion or the ultimate addictive behavior around, in this case, spending or debting or work. So process addictions or process behavioral addictions tend to be as part of a behavioral pattern versus using a substance. So spending, yes, we could say we're using money, but it's more seen in the vernacular as a process addiction and a disorder in that way.
1: Can it go the other way too, Deb? Can it go to restriction? Absolutely. Not, yeah. so, so not spending money and, and having a lot of money, I, I think of uh, it maybe being akin to hoarding, um, but I, I, I have money, but I can't spend it.
4: And that's the deprivation and scarcity. So the assessment that you referenced before, the what's called the post-traumatic stress index revised, one of the domains is traumatic deprivation. And deprivation can show up in a restriction of food, in a sexual deprivation, as well as a deprivation around spending or lack thereof, a fear of spending money, um, uh, of inability or an unwillingness to get medical attention or to spend on oneself, to deny or deprive oneself from anything that's well, positive, nurturing, feeding. So you can see where it can blur into other, other areas of behavior. Yeah. And oftentimes that can be a compensation in a relationship for the person who spends too much. So the, the other partner goes, okay, well, I'm going to compensate and I'm not going to spend anything. And maybe if I model this behavior, my partner will understand not to spend, but you know, intuitively it doesn't work like
0: that. Sounds like a recipe for resentment. So I love what you were talking about with the emotional stuff. And what comes to mind is in your book, you talked about uh, eroticized Spending or eroticized money, or and, and I'm very familiar with that on the sex addiction side, with a with eroticized anger or eroticized rage,
4: and monetized was, rage.
0: And it was really That's fascinating monetized rage. About monetized rage and how that emotional connection gets attached to the money and how it plays out in the relationship. Can can you talk a little bit more about that and how you see that showing up?
4: Yeah, it's a, it's first of all a fascinating dynamic and. Um, where the term that I coined, and I'm going to share the coinage with the person uh, with whom I was talking at the time that the conversation began, I was lecturing with Dr. Corns. We had been in Pennsylvania, we were together traveling, and we started talking about how money becomes erotic. And I was sharing about my time on Wall Street and trading and, and um, the personalities involved with that. And the words that came out of our mouths at the exact same time was, oh my God, monetized rage. Mm. Using, it's the fusing of shame and money and control with power and exploitation at its worst. So if you think of sexual behavior that's exploitive or controlling, well, the behavior is using money to control or to exploit another person or people. And in the form of either money or work. And it's monetized rage. Mm. Very subtle, it could be covert, it could be overt. And I have found often in couples that the interplay between sexual and financial control ends up being the dynamic that is hard to tease apart as to you know what's happening in this dynamic. Is it sexual? Is it financial? It's it's kind of both. And not until couples come into the office, or there's someone who introduces a perspective from the outside, might one or both of the partners in the relationship recognize the dynamic for what it is, which is controlling and potentially abusive.
3: Yeah.
0: I'm thinking... I mean, I'm sure
4: you guys see it in your offices. Mm -hmm.
0: Definitely. I'm sure I've seen it in my office. I've just never had it labeled and sort of like sort of highlighted in that way. And it was really powerful. Dan, you had you had a thought there.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, whether this is on a spectrum. So I love that you address the issues of power in your in your book. I think that's so important to address because we all, you know, power is a healthy thing for us to have, yet it can completely go oh. awry and exploit others. So I, I'm just wondering if there's a spectrum of this, of, you know, not the I mean, you're saying when it's when it's monetized rage, it's to the point where I'm I'm you know hostile, I'm I'm aggressive with this uh, the exploitation of another human being or or you know my partner or others. Um, it's so it's at to that it's that point. There's not like a light version of it, you know. Or, yeah, there's you know, a
4: subtle version, but makes it no less impactful or yeah. exploitative. But it can be covert and subtle.
3: Would that be, you talk about the three dark traits? Would that be more Machiavellianism, like it's more subtle or manipulative?
4: Um, yes and no. I think it could happen in everyday relationships that don't involve excessive um, characterological impairment. For example, you could have a partnership wherein, and it can be same sex or other, it does not matter. This is not gender specific, gender fluid when you have two people who are coming together and um, in, for whatever reason under w- underlying the, the dynamic between them, that maybe money is controlled, the access to money is controlled or controlled with a caveat. It's a quid pro quo. You'll get this if you do this. If I receive or this happens, then I will give you X. I've heard it put in the frame of allowance, that a partner is put on an allowance, and while there is nothing wrong with that between whatever agreements couples come up with, where that argument falls down is when there is a need to establish um, uh, an achievement or a goal to be attained before the money is relinquished. So if I have sex with my partner, X amount of nights a week, if I'm sexual in a certain way and my partner approves, then I get the allowance or I get paid or I'm allowed to do X, Y, or Z. So the agreement falls down pretty quickly if you look under the covers, pun intended, as to what else is driving the agreement. Mm
1: -hmm. Is it conscious or unconscious? Can it be either?
4: I think it's both. You think it's both conscious and unconscious? I think it's unconscionable if it's conscious because now we're truly exploiting a vulnerable partner. Mm -hmm. Where shame does not get acknowledged both within an individual or in the, the relationship, shame can be wielded in such and projected in such contorted ways. So sexual shame is projected onto a partner or within a relationship, but so can this dynamic and control and exploitation with money. If I don't recognize that I'm shameful, but I shame others, or I use money or sex to do the shaming or the contempt or the dismissing, if I'm not aware of it, then I don't know what I don't know. If I don't want to be aware of it, now that is different between willing or unwanted. And, and what we as therapists have to, have to really work on and help enlighten clients to the degree they're able, willing, and uh, can see it. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I, have, I have two different questions that are going in my brain. Deb, in your clients that come in or are talking to you on the phone, what are some patterns? What are some themes that couples struggle with? Yeah. because again, this this podcast or audio video podcast is for masses. It's not just addiction focused.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And so
2: I'm just curious, like, what are some themes of, of issues that folks come in with?
4: Yeah, one of the one of the themes, and it was a story that I wrote about in the book, that the theme is we're arguing about mundane things. We're not communicating well as a couple. And so they come in. And I really want to know, so what do you guys argue about? In fact, go ahead and have an argument. I really don't mind. I mean, I don't want them paying for my, their time to just argue what they do freely and all day long outside of the office. But the fact is, if I can't be a fly on the wall, so I want to hear their argument. And all I have to do is ask, so what do you argue about? And they start arguing that they're not arguing about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's a great prompt because it gets them rolling rather quickly. Um, and the arguments are often about a misperception or a perceived slight of what I thought versus what the other says I thought. And if they end up arguing about time spent in attention or lack of attention to the relationship, when we scratch a little bit deeper or I call pulling on threads, the sweater starts to unravel and we're coming down to resentments around work. How much time is put in? or you don't give the equal amount of effort to the effort that partner A is giving and partner B is resentful, whichever way that goes, it doesn't matter. Mm. It takes is a little bit of lack, uh, the lack of communication and the lack of really being able to say, I'm unhappy or I'm angry or I'm um, concerned that I'm putting in too much. And, and what we agree to as a couple is not taking place. So, there are this, the agreements that people make, and then they have silent arrangements
2: that they make amongst themselves. I'll agree with children. And so, what I'm thinking right here, then, for listeners, is one of the things you all can do at home is again, what we all would encourage is increase the communication. What's the invisible agreements that we have, and what are the visible? And are we meeting those agreements or not and what are the expectations about those agreements i mean that kind of a focused conversation in, about anything money included could really be helpful
3: for relationships Can i ask one question i'm just curious from you all <clears throat> i completely agree Jeannie, mm-hmm. but we just talked about monetized rage and when it gets you know abusive mm-hmm. so i'm curious if someone's in that situation i'm all for healthy communication right under normal circumstances but i'm thinking of a situation where you know, if I'm in an abusive situation and I bring up these issues, I'm trying to communicate clearly with my partner who's I'm realizing now is exploiting me financially. Now, now do I open myself up for further abuse? I'm curious what you all, how might that differ in a situation of exploitation or abuse?
4: Can I add to that, Dan? Please. Maybe not that the partner's even been aware of it's exploitation, but aware that some, there's an inequity going on here. Something's not right. It's NQR, not quite right.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And, they may not have the awareness because they're in that vacuum. They're in that, they're in that echo chamber. They may not have the awareness that, that it's exploitive, but they're starting to feel resentful and or potentially just angry that their needs are not getting met or they're not being even validated. What I and see, that's where it takes our role as a therapist.
1: Yeah, what I see a lot is uh, that the basic information around finances is not shared. And there's a discrepancy where one person will say, no, I, I, I had the whole spreadsheet out and I showed him exactly what was going on, but he didn't want to look at it. He didn't want to see it. And the other person says, you never showed me that. I didn't see that. And then there's an argument about what was shared or what wasn't shared. Um, so I, a lot of times I feel like this is out of my realm to have them come in with spreadsheets and you know, okay, what, what are we doing with the the real uh, material pieces of this? So where do we go with that? Do um I, I've said maybe you can see a, a financial person, a financial advisor, coordinator. And a lot of times it just stops there. They they, they there's not there's not the follow through. <laughs> On
0: these basics i was just gonna say that like with these kind of themes that come up in couples therapy it, it, it goes like one of two ways sometimes it's it's teasing out is one of the people in the couple you know consciously on some level manipulating information because they don't want to look bad or they don't want to be held accountable for what's going on or maybe they're bold. or they feel ashamed or they feel ashamed about what they've done and they're trying to cover it up or are they just stuck in a pattern? I talk about this as, you know, the Rubik's Cube issue. I'm only seeing my side of the Rubik's Cube, and I'm assuming that my side is reality. And I'm not seeing the colors on the other side, but my partner is. And so is this an issue of somebody's consciously manipulating it so that they they can cover something up? Or is it an issue of I'm just only seeing it from my, my side and I haven't opened up to there's a bigger picture here and I'm missing half of it?
4: Yeah, can I address yours and Wendy's question? Because I can do it in the same time. Because I, I don't think-
0: know. Can you? Can. <laughs> for one.
4: I can. I I'm so <laughs> so, you paying us. There's <laughs> the exchange. So, so, to your point, Tim, that is where we as therapists lend the, you know, we're not an executioner, but we are to the degree that we can be objective. We come at the perspective from a, from a, a place that, outside the bubble. Mm-hmm. And just lending a reflection or mirroring back what we hear introduces a new perspective into the relationship, into the dynamic, which may be enough to shift the energy or at the least increase insight of one or other of the partners. When there now is an issue because they've brought something into the office. And if we begin something feels exploitive and a little bit controlling, we have to tread lightly, I tread lightly, and I'm sure we all do, as to not introduce new harm into the union, but to make sure that um, safety is secured for everybody, but that if there is a need to intervene, that we do so delicately. Your point, Wendy, do we bring, tell people, bring your spreadsheets and bring your receipts and let's see what your checks and balances look like? No, unless we're financial experts. Financial therapy speaks to that issue. Hmm. In financial therapy, if one is a financial therapist and I would consider myself to be one, but I also know the limits of what that means and I know the extent to which it doesn't. I do not work with people's finances. So couples have come in, in one particular case I'm thinking about, they came in to talk about sex. We spent the better part of a year not talking about sex and addressing why we're not talking about sex. So one day they came in, they were very angry. They had just had an argument in the uh, ride over and he was preoccupied and the um, husband said, to the other husband. Husband said, you know, he's just arguing about, um, and he's upset about having to take money out of the investments to pay bills, and I start hearing something, and I got intrigued, and I said, Um, can you say that again? And he said, yeah, 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 you know, he's paying our bills with investment money, and he, husband number two said, I don't understand it. Husband number one goes, yeah, Deb, you wouldn't understand hmm. <laughs> which was such a beautiful invitation because he did
3: You don't back down from from that, huh? <laughs>
4: and then Deb said. And then I said, well, try me, because he did not know that I have a history on Wall Street or that I am a <laughs> trader or that I spent many years in finance. So uh, he started to explain to me what was a very unhealthy, dysfunctional, and almost downright, uh, Dangerous way to address violence, and because I recognized that he didn't see this or didn't want to see it, I had to tread very carefully not to inflict any kind of shame on that situation. But it became clear that he wasn't using and or applying any healthy approach to finances. I did say that, and he goes, "Can you can you look at my finances?" No. I will not look at your finances, that the risk of impropriety, it's poor boundaries. Ethically, I would never do that. It's two hats, dual relationship. But I can refer you to several good professionals who can help you work through that. And that's what we do as therapists. We refer out to the appropriate professionals who can help make up the team of support that the coupleship may need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm we work with the emotional and we find a professional to work with the financial.
0: That was beautiful. That's why you were teaching the classes a year out from the training.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Did I stitch that well together?
0: (laughs) You did. That's a 10. That's a 10.
2: You know, Dan, I want to come back to you because what your, your question hasn't really, I think been explored, but what does one do and do we encourage them to have that kind of communication when, when one person is sort of being, I don't want to say victimized. That sounds too big of a word. But uh, exploited control? Exploited or purposely not involved in the decision making and and such. And so, you know, with, with the partner experience we have in our world of, you know, wait a second, I'm not going to encourage someone to try to communicate honestly vulnerably in a gaslighting situation, right. which is the purposeful distortion of reality. The question of the day is, <laughs> does the other person know that they're distorting reality? So that's the the part of, you know, is there awareness that they've got power and control and they're using it and wielding it? Or is it just happening when we look at that dynamic um, and they don't see it because they're in it? So for me, one of the situations was, yeah, bring it up, see how it goes and test kind of, can we have a conversation that feels comfortable enough for us each? So are you talking to the couple?
4: Are you talking to the couple or are you talking to one of the partners of the coupleship?
2: Well, I think in the, in the neither, it's more about the topic of, oh, got it. Okay. Topic of, so I would I say it's contextual. Yeah. If there's safety and then, you know, do it your best. And if it's conflictual and someone doesn't feel safe, emotionally safe, I'm not talking or physically safe, but I'm talking emotionally safe, then that's the referral to couples therapy, Right. It made me think, yeah, because oh, I, you
4: know,
3: I was just thinking that the, the you know, you talk about financial, like if it's to that point, you see these things happening, not just in isolation, right? So if you have financial abuse going on, most likely there's emotional abuse. I mean, I liked how you said that sometimes, Deb, that somehow interplay between sex and fight money where's the line between those kind of exploitation there you're gonna see crossover i would assume is that what you're saying genie that you'll you'll see like you bring this conversation up you're gonna get some kind of um something that's not gonna be a warm welcoming conversation right back. It might be emotional abuse or defensiveness or gaslighting or something that might come back at you mm-hmm. um, if you're opening the door. And that'll give you an indication that there's there's more to the story. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying, Jeannie?
2: Yeah, and that's ah. time to go to the referral because if it doesn't feel emotionally safe to have that conversation, I don't want to encourage someone to have that vulnerability. If they don't feel safe to have that vulnerability, they might need an extra person there to help sort of um, balance and mediate between the individuals. You know,
4: in the worst case, we're talking about domestic violence. In the worst cases, we're talking about some level of domestic violence anyway, but the word violence conjures up these, you know, physical violence. Um, I'm thinking of a woman who came in many years ago. She came in because she was concerned about the marriage. She wasn't happy. It was a second marriage for both of them um sexually she felt it was was controlling her husband was controlling and when I began to ask was there were there other examples or aspects of the marriage in which she felt that she was controlled and she said yes but not much Mm -hmm. so put it out there and then clawed it back and I said well in what ways then would there be and she started to really without I don't think she was aware of to what detriment she was telling me but that he controlled the money. She had no say in any of it. He would only allow her some access to the accounts. Now, she was working, and she made a very nice income. So she was not without some financial resources. But he, once those monies came into the relationship, he took them over. And there was very little room that she was willing to give herself to listen to anything I had to say that could ask her to look at this differently. I wasn't telling her do this or do that. I just asked her to consider looking at the the situation from another perspective. And you'd say, well, why would she resist? She came in for help. She didn't come in for help with that. She Mm -hmm. came help with the sexual dissatisfaction. Mm And sexual dissatisfaction was very much tied up in the financial dissatisfaction.
2: Which is exactly your point, Dan, of, you know, scratch a little bit at one and you might find another, you know, power and control maneuvering or mechanisms. You know, I, the, they're the, bedfellows, they really are.
0: One of the things that's coming up for me as I'm thinking about this is the other side. And so like we were talking about finances and what we, what we learned and what we do. And like, I know in in recovery, while I had to figure out finances and relationships and relationship with sex and all that kind of stuff, that I live my life in a very different way. And so I'm a very different role model for my kids. I'm a very different role model for my friends. My wife and I, our relationship has a very different dynamic to it. Um, I have conversations with my kids imperfectly, but, you know, attempting to have conversations with them about finances, relationships, and those kind of things. And so... I I just, I think it's important as we're having this conversation about how deep this can go and how dark and painful this can be. I think there's the other side, which is, but when you have walked through that tunnel and you come out the other side, there is another side and it, and your life does change and not just your life, but the lives of the people around you can be significantly influenced in a very positive way because of your own work, whether that's recovery or healing or however you label it. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, isn't that the basic tenets of, uh, you know, AA, you know, in recovery, financial insecurity will leave us. I mean, life will be restored. We will begin to live in the promises and not in the characteristics. I mean, all aspects of life start looking better, but making, jumping that divide, like for any one of us, I'm in recovery 21 years for sex and love addiction, making and jumping that divide early on was... I you'd have to claw addiction out of my hands because I was not letting go willingly.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to put sort of as for closing today on that other side, Tim. I like what you said It's more of a strength perspective, also, is what are some things that people can do to feel more confident with money or to lessen the discussions and the arguments about money? You know, because like how can we also leave our listeners with, here are some good things to try and to practice? So I kind of wondered like uh, everybody can throw a couple in there, but as we're closing today to start offering some ideas to help people. I'm gonna let you go first, Deb.
1: (laughs) Okay, I'll start.
2: If there's a void, I'll fill it.
4: (laughs) Um, The first thing I encourage all clients is to be curious. Ask questions, not of just one person. Go and ask questions of professionals. Ask the questions and ask the questions that say to them, what questions should I be asking? What should I be asking that I don't know? Seek out and work in consultation. That means just because a person or an individual or a couple don't know what they want to know, that doesn't mean they have to do it on their own. Ask for help. Be curious and ask for help. Seek consultation from professionals who do know. If I go to the next person who knows as little as I do and I'm asking them for professional um, uh, advice or guidance, I'm not going to get very far. So I seek out those who know more than I do, who have more experience and time than I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I also don't take no for an answer. So I encourage individuals and clients to say, if someone says no, the boundary is why not? And if no means no, great find it, find the information elsewhere. But there is no gatekeeper to the information. And if someone does portray themselves as being a gatekeeper, we need a new gate and we need a new keeper. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
4: Mm That would be my two cents.
2: I'm thinking for my idea was have the conversation about how how do you spend money? How do you value or create value about what you spend money on um what was it what was money like growing up so when couples are coming together share your your growing up story through a financial lens so they're learning about who how the other person grew up as well as examining themselves of how they grew up they might choose different ways but i just think it's a good sharing of information of historically anyone else
1: yeah, I'm going to dovetail on that, Jeannie. Um, I was thinking of people sharing their uh, the, some of the mottos around money. So for example, in, in my family, I heard my dad say a lot, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Mm-hmm. And as a little girl, I didn't quite understand what that meant. But as an older child and an adolescent, I'm like, oh, I see. I see what he's saying. And um, uh, incidents that happened around money. Um, my mother had a gift store and she lost the receipts one day. She, lost, she just didn't know where the, the money was. And it was a major, major event um, in our household. Uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that big a deal, it was one day. But to my family, that was a, a huge deal. Um, When I took a look at this uh, going back in time, uh, my grandparents were immigrants and my uh, parents were children of the depression. And so that had a significant impact in the way they thought and believed about money, which then uh, trickled down to me, which I had to take a very close look at. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to look at the intergenerational patterns. Mm -hmm.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Mm -hmm. would say you know those are all great things i would say the couples that i see in my office and i'm I'm not a you know financial i'm not a financial therapist but um there's so often issues that couples come up with around not listening to each other you know and so oftentimes when we're heard things get better so usually we don't argue about the thing that we're arguing about um kind of like what you said earlier deb i just think for couples, if we spend more time slowing down, really trying to hear what the other person's saying without making assumptions of what the other, what we think the other person's thinking or saying, that goes so far. So think, listen more than you speak. Um, and, and really, especially because money can be so loaded from all the reasons we just talked about, it means so much. And some things we are not even aware about. And knowing these intergenerational patterns can be helpful to, to let us know what our own assumptions are, but listen more than you speak
0: wow i have to follow that because dan you're always so kind from the heart i'm gonna say because i have a healthy level of narcissism i'm gonna look at this through my own sort of personal lens and and the things that are coming to mind for me uh first one is patience and i'm sure i'm surprised none of you that patience is not my strong suit um my wife when we were dating had a nickname for me she called me mr instant gratification and one of the things that I really had to learn in recovery, and I think that this is true in all of this work, is be patient. If you're looking at the, the power dynamic in the relationship, if you're looking at money, if you're looking at sex, it isn't gonna change in a month, no matter how much we want it to. This is gonna be stuff that you put in place bit by bit and just be patient and it's, and it's, it's eventually gonna shift, but it's not gonna be an overnight fix. Uh, and then the other piece I was really resonating Dev- when we were talking about um, consultation, and, and for me, I think there's a huge piece about: am I willing to be transparent to, you know, not without boundaries, but am I willing to share with other people that I trust? Hey, here's what's going on with me with finances. Here's what's going on in our relationship with this dynamic. Hey, here's what's going on in sort of our sex life, without going into the details, but uh, being open to other people's perspective and guidance. Because, you know, I I know that very rarely have I effectively found my way out of my own mess. I need other people to, to guide me in that.
4: Yep, thank you. What I, you know, as a last closing, when I tell my clients when they come in to work on issues around money, or money is an issue but it's not the presenting issue, I ask them if they want to be curious about what the meaning is or the significance of the struggle for your partner. You know, when someone doubles down on and digs their heels in, you got to know that there's a lot of intensity because there's some significance for them. And so, instead of trying to solve the dilemma or the argument, it's can you slow down long enough to understand what is driving that and what's the significance for your partner, so that you understand each other? Yeah. Then, then you're working collaboratively, but you need a professional such as ourselves to help them guide through that. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: and speaking of a professional such as yourself uh, we'll have your information on on you know the written section of, of the the podcast but i would love to to have you introduce you know other resources how people can find you and you know
4: thank you uh, you can find me you can find, you can find me on okay i don't have an insta oh you have my books up that's why you, you said work. that thank you yeah two of those two out of the three The third one is about the history of sex addiction, but I don't think that's relevant to this conversation. (laughs) Um, I don't have an Instagram account, but you can find me at DebraKaplanCounseling.com. You can find me online, you can find me in the books, you can find me on podcasts and media interviews. Um, And if you invite me back and you'll have me, we can talk about this for another hour, that'd be fun. (laughs) Thanks
2: for coming Deb.
0: (laughs) I, I, nice, I, Deb. Deb. I just want to say, Deb, it is so great to have you. I, I always, I, you hold a special part of my heart because of all the so time bad. we had. We don't get to talk nearly as often, and having you join us in this conversation has been so fun. Thank you so much for, for making the time to join us. All of you
4: guys. Thank, Thank
0: you. you Deb. <laughs> I'm so glad that, that Deborah joined us. That was so much fun. Uh, I so appreciated it, and, and I loved having her there. Um, anything you guys wanna throw in here at the end as we're wrapping up?
1: Well, I wanted to congratulate Jeannie um, on becoming president of Absats, And I wanted to, uh, to ask her to just give a brief uh, description of what Absats is. And I would really like the four of us to do a podcast on um, partners of sex addicts and betrayal trauma. Yeah. So Jeannie, can you give a little snippet on that?
2: Thanks so much, Wendy, that's very thoughtful of you. Um, yes, I am part of an organization called Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists. And Tim and Dan are also on board of directors, but this is an organization that is dedicated to the training of professionals, coaches or clinicians um, to work with betrayal trauma. And we're also hoping to provide a lot more resources to actually the partner community on our website in coming months. So we hope to make that change. If you're interested, we would love to do a podcast. That sounds great. Thanks.
0: We'll definitely have to do that. So thank all of you for listening to us and joining the conversation today. Uh, Please be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, wherever you're getting this content. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at our next conversation.
1: Bye, everybody. Hi, thanks. Thanks. (laughs) i <laughs>